0: You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 303, Prostitution Research with Dr. Melissa Farley. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast here at Vanguard University's Global Center for Women and Justice in Orange County, California. This is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. We're going to have a conversation with Dr. Melissa Farley. She's a feminist psychologist who was authored or co-authored 52 peer-reviewed articles on trauma, health care, prostitution, pornography, and sex trafficking, as well as two books, Prostitution, Trafficking, and Traumatic Stress, and Prostitution and Trafficking in Nevada, Making the Connections. Her research and publications have been used by governments in South Africa Cambodia, Canada, France, New Zealand, Ghana, Sweden, Cambodia, United Kingdom, and the United States for education and policy development on prostitution and trafficking. Dr. Farley founded Prostitution Research and Education, a nonprofit research institute which disseminates educational materials by survivors and others who contribute to the movement to abolish prostitution. Dr. Farley has also been a speaker at the Global Center for Women and in Justice Insure Justice Conference. We are so glad to have this conversation. It is such a pleasure to have you with me today, Dr. Melissa Farley. Thank you.
1: I am so happy to be here, Sandy Morgan. It's been many, many years when we first met and began working on this challenging human rights abuse, but it's a pleasure. Thanks.
0: Well, you have been doing prostitution research for how many years?
1: We have been doing research on prostitution and pornography and trafficking because they're so linked. We've found you can't separate them. We've been doing research on those things for 25 years now with many, many, many other people. It's not just prostitution research and our team, but it's lots of partners.
0: I think that's one of the things I really admire about your research is it is very connected, related. Survivor voices are always present and cultural representation from leaders and experts where you're doing research are part of the process. So, So you're
1: true. It's true. I we could never have done any of this without the leadership, really, of survivors of the sex trade in all parts of the world. Everything I know, and everything we try and communicate, comes from that base of their perceptions, and their observations, and their analysis of the sex trade. And I know that's really important to you too, right? In your work.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. We don't want to do anything for someone without them being part of the process. So let's start off. And if you can give us a glimpse into how you see the overlap of prostitution, pornography, and human trafficking those three elements?
1: Let me just first say that after many, many requests from people in the media for, ans- for for an answer to the question, well, how many people are trafficked anyway? And when you use the word trafficking, you're ta- most of us in the United States are talking about the federal United States Trafficking Victim Protection Act, which has occasionally been revised since it was first put into effect. But that's what people are talking about. It's been my experience, Sandy, I don't know about you, but people, their eyes roll back in their heads if you start talking about trafficking without defining it. So over the years, I've come to decide the simplest way to talk about trafficking is to describe what it does and what it does is it's pimping. Trafficking on the ground in terms of looking at someone's behavior and and the criminal act it's pimping. It's the control of one human being by another who uses them for the purpose of making money by selling them for sexual use. It's just straight up pimping. Everybody knows what pimping is. Few people really know what what trafficking is. So I use a behavioral definition of trafficking. So if you go along with my definition, trafficking is pimping, then the next question is, well, how many people in the sex trade, which includes Everything you can think of that has to do with selling sex acts, mainly pictures, uh, no pictures taken, phone sex, uh, massage, parlor prostitution, escort prostitution, cell phone prostitution, which just means that somebody puts an ad up for, quote, high-end escort, and it just means everybody has a cell phone the sex buyer the pimp and the woman who is being sold all have cell phones so if you look at all the different types of prostitution or and types really means the location where it happens then the question is how many of those women are pimped and we have finally did a survey of agencies And governmental reports from Europe and Asia and North America. And and we called up different NGOs and asked uh, service organization NGOs. And we asked them, how many of your uh, the people you're providing services to are under pimp control or under third party control? Because women in the sex trade don't call them pimps, they call them managers. Boyfriends, husbands, girlfriends, friends, they don't call them pimps, but that's what they're doing. So we asked that question of many, many agencies and many, many official reports. And Sandy, that is a number that is so important to me and it's so little understood. What we found is that 84% of all adults in prostitution, that's over the age of 18, 84% are under pimp control. This turns the common idea that most people are in prostitution voluntarily on its head, right? Right. The The common narrative put out, I think, by pimps and their allies and friends, the common narrative is that Well, most people are in prostitution voluntarily, but we have to pay attention to those few that are trafficked. No, it's not true. Most people are under pimp control. And it's been that way for quite a while, and it looks like it's staying that way very much so so that the connection between pimping or trafficking and prostitution is that it's usually got a pimp in the picture of course and always a sex buyer so you have a large group of people who are vulnerable because usually for the most part they're female or they look like females they're young they're poor and more often than not as we know here in California and in many many parts of the world there are women who are vulnerable because of their immigration status or their ethnic or cultural identity so that's who's in the sex trade the simple simple answer to how is pornography connected to that is i would say this the only the only new thing about pornography is that there's a camera, either a camera in a studio, which is the old-fashioned way of making pornography, or a webcam, laptop, or cell phone-produced pornography, which is most pornography today is produced at home with a cell phone or a laptop.
0: Wait, so, so these big <laughs> studios that proliferated a decade ago now, are being pushed out of business by
1: everyday mom and pop pop pop-ups? They're not mom and pop. They look like mom and pop. They're made to look like the pimp isn't in the picture. But the fact is the pimp is very much in the picture. One of the things we've just found in a new study of pornography production harms is that more a majority of pornography that was produced in, in Sweden and nearby near Sweden. Most of the pornography those 105 men and women produced was filmed without their consent. Wow. Without their consent by Johns or by people putting cameras up in hotel rooms and stuff like that. I was surprised by that. So mom and pop doesn't exist. The amateur porn look, the mom and pop look, is how it's sold. But there's there's a pimp in the picture much more often than not. So the role of
0: control that you used in the definition at the beginning goes across all of these overlapping elements here. So whether we're talking about selling pornography, which is still selling a commercial sex act, or if we're talking about an in-person sexual encounter, but control is is the, the overlapping concept that's involved.
1: That's um. exactly right Sandy and it's coercive control. And it it's not again it, it, you know the reason we started our organization was to debunk the myths and lies about the sex trade that are put out by sex trade businessmen i.e. pimps. And one of the one of the lies that's out there is that It is a freely made choice. The way you and I might figure out, you know, where are we going to meet for a coffee at coffee shop A or B? It's not a choice like that. It's a coerced choice made by extremely vulnerable human beings who may not have other options. You know, today when somebody is doing blow jobs at a gas station so they can get a tank of gas to go to a job. If somebody a reporter comes up and asks her, "Hey, what are you doing?" and she might say, "Well, I'm choosing to do this because I want a tank of gas." But you know that's not really a choice. And similarly when a teenager does Sells some kind of a sex act in exchange for a McDonald's hamburger because she's hungry, or her little brother or sister is hungry. Uh, there are many, many teenage girls prostituting that are a primary source of food for their families in the United States today. So, this is a choice that can be coerced by social conditions like hunger, a lack of housing wanting to get some nice clothes for yourself or your children. It it isn't always a gun to the head and chains to the ankles. That's my point. That's that's a myth. And that is certainly an extreme form of pimping where you have coercive violent control. Now there's always violence in the background when you have pimping or trafficking or any kind of prostitution it's a very violent enterprise but but the coercive control can be a lack of opportunity a lack of housing a lack of jobs a lack of food or even less visible to the to the casual observer it can be a lack for teenagers It can be a lack of family support and affection and attention, and certainly pimps are smarter than you and I and any anti-trafficking organization in knowing how to sweet talk young kids. They know how to do that. There's a word for that. I call it just the recruiting love bombing that That is what cults do when they're trying to get people into a cult. The word for it in Germany is Romeo pimping. But it's a little misleading because every pimp knows how to do that. That's their job. So let me go back
0: to when you use the word choice. I hear this often and... Uh, I still remember one of the very first interviews that I did with a young woman when I started working right here in Orange County. Uh, She told me how this was her choice because she was helping her boyfriend. So it like fits that entire paradigm. And over and over again, this idea of choice is used as part of that argument, and now I'm hearing it again when people are talking about different approaches to legalize prostitution in order to, and I'm not exactly sure even how to say this out loud because it bothers me so much, but to respect the choice of the individual and if i have concerns about is it a choice that's been coerced by an environment of of scarcity and the coercive mind games that we've talked about before on this podcast, so that this person feels like they are making this decision, but they're also being manipulated. Where does that fit into the arguments that we um, are hearing about legalizing prostitution?
1: That's such an important observation, Sandy. Like you, I hear this every day and twice on Mondays from the pimps and their friends and i consider pimps and their friends and and sometimes pimps who call themselves sex work advocates you know there are a lot of pimps in the, that organization those organizations also i don't know if you know that the sex workers organizing project swap in california was begun by a woman who has an interstate trafficking conviction she's a pimp She's friendly, California girl, surfer look, but she's a pimp and she called herself a sex worker advocate. Sadly, she is no longer alive, but when she was alive, she was a strong, strong advocate for prostitution and trafficking, of course. But to get back to that question, someone says, But they, but you're restricting their choice, Sandy. You can't tell somebody what to do if she says or he says, This is my choice, I'm making it, I'm making good money, etc. Here's how I would respond to that Does she, or if you're talking directly to a young person who says, I made the choice? You can, the question, I, I guess this is a main question. I wouldn't argue with somebody who is on the street and saying they made that choice. That's not the place for the debate. But when a reporter says this, when a sex work advocate says this, when somebody in a meeting who's pushing legalized sexual exploitation, what I would say is, <clears throat> but I have a question for you. Has she been offered the choice not to prostitute? That's the question we need to be asking, because in one short sentence, it focuses in on the utter lack of choice of some young person who is turning tricks out on International Boulevard in Oakland or cap street in san francisco or online more often than not trafficking is advertised and prostitution are is advertised through online porn so the question is do you have options do, if you wanted to if the if the person wanted to could they access safe housing and food another way or are they actually prostituting because they might not have a place to live in next month if they don't raise the money from the sex trade, from engaging in prostitution. So see if you can, that's one approach. And Um, I've heard that over and over again. I've met moms
0: who say to me, it's cold, I have to pay the heating bill. Um, Right. My children are not going to be cold because I don't want to. And I'm using air quotes work. OK, so another
1: argument, I know we but, don't. But have let me just say time. one other thing that I hate sure. about that argument, like they're making the choice to prostitute. If you if you bring up if you object to that assumption that the choice is made, So oftentimes somebody will back down a little bit and they'll say, yeah, 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 it's not, yeah, it's not the greatest thing in the world, but there are a lot of unpleasant jobs, Sandy, who likes working at McDonald's. I'm sure your boss gives you a hard time at Vanguard sometimes, you know, we all have (laughs) difficult jobs and I get, yeah. yeah, so we can, we can go down that road too. For sure, for sure.
0: So, one of the other arguments that I've heard is that, um, is about how this might help remove some of the organized crime element. And some of the, I remember a conversation back in episode 197 with Dr. Donna Hughes, a mutual friend of ours. Yes. That She reported that countries that utilize the legalization approach anticipated getting rid of organized crime, but only succeeded in expanding illegal, unregulated prostitution.
1: That's exactly right. And it's only gotten worse since you interviewed Dr. Hughes. Only worse. It always amazes me when people go down that road, Sandy, and say, well, it would be better. Here's how I see that question. And that's really one of the most important questions and the simplest issue to bring up around, should we legalize prostitution or should we help anyone who wants to get out of the sex trade get out and arrest the perps of the crime who are sex buyers, pimps, and traffickers? To get to address that argument, you have to know the answer to the question Doesn't legal prostitution make it at least a little bit better? Or doesn't it back off some of the worst elements? Or doesn't it reduce the harm? At heart, that question is a harm reduction argument. And it goes like this Well, the stigma is reduced the social stigma of prostitution is reduced and nobody's people are not getting arrested and anybody engaged any any anti-trafficking advocate any human rights advocate any housing advocate needs to understand that there is no data that shows ever that legal prostitution reduces the rape the violence the assault the sexual harassment and the and the harm physical and psychological of prostitution that has been documented in decades of many 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 people's research we know how bad women and others get hurt in the sex trade but what does get reduced is one or two things and we need to know this and we need to talk about it when prostitution is legalized women and men in the sex trade do not get arrested and they they twist the abolitionist position and they call us prohibitionists maybe there's some people out there that morally think or they make a moral argument that it's bad to support people in prostitution by not arresting them, right? Yeah. We don't we, that's not where you and I are at. This is not a moral argument. This is a harm argument. We're we are trying to reduce the harm and we would never arrest anybody who's turning a trick. We don't want that. So they they they're lying about our position on legal prostitution. That's very important to know and confront anyone who makes that mistake or deliberate misinterpretation of the abolitionist position. The other thing to know is that evidence from New Zealand, Germany, and the Netherlands is very, very clear. There's no reduction at all in social stigma with legal prostitution. The stigma remains The Germans can't get anyone to join a prostitution union, neither can the Dutch. Why? Nobody wants a record of ever being in prostitution, whether it's legal, illegal, quasi-legal, whatever. No one wants to be in it, and, and everyone wants to get out fast, and they almost always don't make the kind of money that pimps promise them. There is no reduction in the harm of prostitution. You can't stop rapes in prostitution. It's impossible. People think, oh, they have panic buttons. I once talked to a guy who told me those booths in Amsterdam have not one, not two, but three panic buttons, and women are still raped and strangled and pimps still keep pillows out of the little beds in those booths why because pimps know they're used to suffocate and and sometimes assassinate women so let's let's go back to when you were talking about we
0: don't want to arrest the the person being
1: prostituted. Sold for sex act
0: and so what Came about, we moved away from using the language of legalization and we started about using the language of decriminalizing. And we we don't want to criminalize and further stigmatize that victim. But many of the approaches to decriminalization are not just about decriminalizing the, the woman or sometimes a man a male, a child, but actually it decriminalizes various actors in the sex trade that include the pimp, the brothel owners, the sex buyers. and
1: Legalization and decriminalization are a pimp's legal dream. They don't do anything for the person in prostitution, except take more money away from them and make it easier for brothels and legal venues to make more money, which is pimping and brothel managing. But yeah, that's exactly right. Both what is called decriminalized prostitution and legal prostitution, they're both laws that are set up for pimps and for sex trade businessmen. They do not benefit the people in it. New Zealand has had the same amount of pimp control and coercion post decriminalization. They have much more trafficking from Australia and the Pacific and Asia than they did before. Why? Because pimps can make money. It's simple and pimps don't have to worry about get arrested.
0: So let's um, I know we we've got to wrap up pretty quick and I'm going to put links to that research you're mentioning in our show notes, but I want to wrap up by going back to 2008 when you really led the battle against legalization in San Francisco and you built um, support from both sides of the aisle. And I just like a little bit of your reflection on that. And who supported you?
1: Well, if you go to noonk.net, N N-O-O-N-K O O N K.net, you can see a list of kind of famous Bay Area personages and Democrats and Republicans and community groups who supported a grassroots organization that opposed a measure to, as we put it every time we opened our mouth, Sandy, and I urge people to do this, decriminalize and normalize trafficking and pimping. That's what we focused on. We were very, very clear about messaging. And we hired someone full-time, who had PR expertise. She had a politician relative in her family. So she grew up around PR and messaging. That's essential. People like you and me, your friends, my friends, we we love them, but none of us are PR experts. And pimps are. Their friends are. They know how to message message and most of us are a little naive about that and i sure include myself in it so there's a there were a few key elements to that campaign and one of them was a we raised enough money to hire a full-time pr person and she ran the whole campaign With a lot of input from a whole bunch of us, including the legendary Norma Hotelling at Sage and several friends of hers at Sage and many others. Safe House, which is still going in San Francisco, Safe House was behind this 100% and Glenda Hope, and uh, I could make a list a mile long. We had a website and we ran quotes. At this time, Barack Obama was running for president. And guess what? The pimps chose a real good time to put it on the ballot because Obama brought in a bunch of young voters. And in order to try and pass these measures, they were getting signatures on ballot measures by having topless people walking around with clipboards getting signatures They pulled out every trick in the book, so to speak, (laughs) but it takes a whole community. You cannot just be siloed if you try and object to pimp based laws that are coming up again. They bring them around every, every few years. We need to get used to this and we need to have an organization that's flexible, that has their messaging down and that and that has enough money to run ads in the newspaper, do free workshops, have media contacts, because the pimps and their friends have a lot of media savvy, don't you think? Yes,
0: yes. Well, <laughs> we're going to work hard to get the messaging out, Dr. Farley, and tell us the website for prostitution research and education.
1: Yes, it's a long name, prostitutionresearch.com. We have a number of libraries there. We have a whole library on law and policy. We have a blog called Traffic Jamming, where you can pick up the latest in political movements that are opposing the legalization of pimping and trafficking, And um, I I would like
0: to -to place when I want the latest research on prostitution. And we're going to put a link to the no one case so you can look at history and learn from what the community there did back in 2008. Much of it is still very relevant. And we'll put links to episode 197, where we talked about legalization with Dr. Donna Hughes. And again, episode 219, where we talked to Brad Miles. And come back and join us on the Ending Human Trafficking podcast again in two weeks. And Melissa, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and wisdom.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Sandy. I appreciate our worked together over the years. Thank you so much and see you soon.
0: All right. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.